3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast here on 3CR. It has just gone 7.02 and I believe the date is the 27th of January. And this morning I'm joined in the studio by Inez and on the phone line we've got Priya and Malika. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, we've got Priya and on the phone, but maybe not Inez um, on the, in the other studio. We'll hopefully find Inez at some stage. Um, but for now, how's everyone going this morning? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Um, you know, cool change. You're hearing it more and more. Yeah, it was pretty wild driving to the studio this morning to the station. It's um, raining and also some lightning, which, you know, exciting. Yeah, and I definitely, um, you know, I I want to be there. I'm spewing that I'm not at the station, but I'm also glad that I avoided riding in a storm. Yeah, it wasn't really r- what riding weather, and as we know, you're committed a bike a bike person, so not not the day for you anyway. Um, so that's good. Yeah, but I was I was wondering if yeah, there's any interaction between um, radio waves and lightning, but probably not. They're probably completely different. Um, so should we get into what's in, on in the show this morning? Um, maybe Priya, you can kick us off. Oh, I thought Monica was going to kick us off. Oh, yeah. Are you, Monica? I'm ready. Sorry. I'm ready for it. Um, this morning we're starting it off with an interview with Governor Woman Cheryl Buchanan, one of the early ca- campaigners at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972, um, and they will be speaking at the 50th anniversary of the embassy. This audio was broadcast live yesterday during 3CR's Invasion Day 2020 programming. And then next up, we'll be speaking with Frank Gaffer, a well-won and Wiradjuri queer man, trade unionist, education and community activist, and one of the organisers of the No Police in Pride open letter. And he's going to join us to discuss that open letter and its calls for Victoria Police to cease participation in the Pride March. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre to discuss the centre's recent statement on Australia's housing and homelessness crisis, which was highlighted in the Productivity Commission's 2022 report on government services. And Jay's also going to provide some updates on the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council, which he spoke with us about last year in terms of their plans to build a privately owned health and community service precinct in Coburg and the importance of prioritising public housing over private profit. Um, and finally, I'm really excited to share this with everyone. Earlier this week, I caught up with Dr. Jackie Huggins, the Dr. Jackie Huggins, to discuss the recently published updated edition of her classic collection, Sister Girl, Reflections on Tideism, Identity and Reconciliation, which is out now with the University of Queensland Press. And um, Dr. Huggins is a member of the Bidjara and Berry Gabajuru peoples, and she's currently leading the work towards treaty or treaties in Queensland. Um, so just a reminder that this is only a section of that conversation, and you can catch the rest. This is your teaser. 
next Monday, the 31st of January, from 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR's Women on the Line. And there's also an event on Monday night. So you can listen to Dr. Huggins in conversation with Dr. Anita Heist on Monday evening, and you can register online for that at uqp.com.au forward slash events. And if you can't hear it in Priya's voice, um, they're a fan. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it was so exciting to be able to uh, speak with Dr. Huggins about this incredible work. And also the, the final chapter um, in this new updated book is just like, such a such a heavy hitter. It's called "Don't Call Me Auntie," and um, is questioning why people have decided to just, apropos of nothing, start calling Dr. Huggins Auntie without asking um, how she'd like to be referred to. Mm, okay. Well, I can't wait to hear that first teaser and then uh, listen to the rest on Monday. But for now, we're just going to a CSA and then maybe some headlines. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're going to get the headlines. Over to you, Priya. Yes. And um, again, thanks to the incredible Emily, who is, you know, has been overseas and has been, I, I mean, the way that I think about it is that Emily is up at like one in the morning doing the headlines. But of course, because of the time difference, I'm sure she's doing this at a reasonable hour. But she's written up a range of very important headlines from this week. So, The headlines for the 27th of January, 2022, um, in headlines this week, thousands of people marched around the country in protest of Invasion Day yesterday, including gatherings in Canberra in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. In the past two weeks, the embassy has successfully stopped a hostile takeover by a predominantly non-First Nations protest group that aimed to use it as a cover for a planned attack on Old Parliament House. The embassy and First Nations activists camped there have also been allegedly targeted with intimidation, damage to property and attempted arson attacks. Due to high numbers of COVID cases in communities, protest organisers in Melbourne, Hobart and Darwin encouraged participation in online gatherings to signify a day of mourning with live streams reaching thousands of people around the country. In other news, state and federal governments, including Victoria, have failed to meet a deadline to establish a body to inspect prisons, youth detention facilities, and police cells. The commitment promised under an optional protocol to the United Nations Convention Against Torture would set up an an inspectorate uh, to observe facility operations, speak directly to detainees, and publish findings. Change the record, a First Nations-led justice coalition said the big states have failed to progress a move that could help protect against First Nations deaths in custody. In news on the Tonga tsunami and volcanic eruption response, the Australian Navy ship HMAS Adelaide has docked in Tonga to deliver humanitarian supplies despite a COVID outbreak on board the ship. Tonga is currently COVID-free and authorities have arranged for the ship to deliver aid without person-to-person contact, a condition that will apply to all foreign aid shipments. And finally, Australia's aged care homes 
have, are being devastated uh, by the current wave of Omicron COVID infections with more than 1,100 aged care homes locked down. Residents are suffering from the serious physical and psychological effects of isolation and at times inadequate care due to major staff shortages. The federal government has promised a fraction of what was recommended in last year's Royal Commission into Aged Care, and most of the funding is yet to be allocated. And that's what we've got for the headlines today. Thanks so much, Priya. And yeah, thanks to Emily for um, doing those headlines long distance. We really, really appreciate it. Um, And thanks for joining on the phone line, um, Malika and and Priya. We might go into this first segment now. so we're going to hear this audio from Goma woman Cheryl Buchanan, one of the early campaigners of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972. Um, and she was speaking at the 50th anniversary of the embassy um, yesterday. So this was part of the 3CR Invasion Day broadcast from yesterday. And I'm sure that whole broadcast will be available. And I was listening throughout the day and it was a really um, incredible broadcast. So I really encourage people to have a listen to that. But for now, um, here's Cheryl Buchanan. Everybody. I'd like to pay my respect to the Nyambri, Ngunnawal people on this country we're here today. Fifty years ago, four people came to Canberra. And in the next six months, the Ten Embassy grew. The umbrella grew to a few canvases. I remember, and I've told my family, sleeping on a canvas, covered with a canvas, waking up covered in ice. They were wonderful people, and we should remember them all when we're marching today. Some very, very proud warriors, very proud warriors, who we have lost. And I can't name them all because there is just too many. And it gives you great sadness. But what brings joy to me is to see all the young people. And it kind of feels a bit like a Kunnamulla takeover while I'm standing up here talking because you had Coco and Ruby and now me. But I can tell you now that it's with such pride that I come here as a proud woman. Women have been doing amazing things in this country, right throughout this country, as well as the men sometimes with little recognition, and it's with them I open my heart today and say be proud, be strong, be deadly. You can say all the slogans today, you can have your five minutes of fame, you can get your picture in the newspaper. At the end of the day, what really matters is what you do after this, the way that you live your life after this. I have tried to devote my life to my family, to my culture. There are so many deaths in custody, as Coco alluded to and and talked about. The problem is this, that many of our people still are stolen generation. Many of our people still are looking for their identity. Many of our people still don't know who their family is, where the boundary of their countries are. It is all of us, it's our responsibility to make them feel at home 
And if we can't make our own people feel at home, then we shouldn't be standing up as warriors in this struggle. It's so important everyone to feel the base in this country. It is our country. We are blessed because every day we wake up. Every day we wake up in our own country knowing that all of those spirits of our people who passed on are protecting us every day of our lives. But at the same time, we are losing so many of our people, especially to suicide. And what we need to do is try and work out a way through our culture, through our song, through our dance, through our stories, through our family history, connecting those people to make our people feel whole again. Back in the day when I had a hell of a lot more energy than I've got now, <laughs> I used to be the last speaker before we marched. So this is it. We want, we have our sovereignty. We don't need anyone to tell us. We are sovereignty. We are fighting for You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and just then you heard a really amazing speech by Guama woman Cheryl Buchanan, one of the early campaigners at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972, speaking at the 50th anniversary of the embassy. And that audio there was broadcast live yesterday during 3CR's uh, Invasion Day 2022 program. Um, and next up, we are going to go into a track, um, and this one, a request from Priya, or a suggestion rather, this one's called um, Anthem, and it is by Titters. And there ain't nothing at all to the heart to still waiting for their voice to be heard. Don't sing me your anthem when your anthem's absurd.
You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and just then you heard Anthem by Titters. Um, and now I believe we have Inez on um, on the mic in Studio 2. Inez, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, there we go. Okay, so um, we were talking as a team yesterday about you know how to mark the fact that we're doing this show the day after Invasion Day, and we thought we know that there's been lots of calls you know to pay the rent and um, different places that that folks can give money um, to, yeah, to pay the rent basically um, in recognition of Invasion Day and every day that we're living on unceded um, Aboriginal land. So Inez has put together a few places that, that folks might want to check out to give some money. So do you want to run us through those, Inez? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we first want to bring attention to the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service and the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, who provide very vital care uh, for First Nations people here in Victoria. I think it's always important to check in with them, um, and it's a very quick Google search that you can also do that with, but they have been uh, pivotal in helping out with uh, vaccination rates and COVID, as well as you know the uptake of homelessness during this very prevalent time, especially with Omicron. And uh, the next one, uh, the next two, are Land Back Council. So the first one is Warren of Kanak. And you can find the fundraiser on GoFundMe. And it is a Land Back initiative that exercises sovereign strength and self-determination to regenerate land and waters through native plants and bush medicine gardens, create a seed library and nurture a project that nurture and protect the existing ancestor trees and cultural landscapes surrounding. So this initiative will be led by Erika Wulu, a sovereign mother of the LGBTQ families and cousin to most of so-called Southern Australia, Southern Victoria, Australia, sorry. Erika will be working with other strong sovereign community activists, uh, land defenders, grandmothers, mothers, aunties, cousins, and a trusted circle of allies, advertisers, and stakeholders. And the initiative aims to take its time in building a self-sustaining base over three years before launching an official opening for residencies for land and water regeneration and a seed library and cultural practices. And then we also have the Alawan Local Aboriginal Land Council. And Sorry, just give me one second. <laughs> I just need some water, I think. That's fine, yeah. Um, listeners might remember that the... Um, that, um, Arika from Warren of Canuck actually spoke on the program sometime last year. I can't exactly remember when. Maybe it was earlier last year. And um, that fundraiser's, yeah, been continuing since then. So, um, yeah, it's really, really good one to keep supporting and um, keep, yeah, keep getting them towards their target. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can type in W-U-U-R-N-O of O-F and then K-A-N-A-K um, into GoFundMe and you'll find the fundraiser. And the next one um, is the Anawan one, which is Help Us Buy Back Anawan Land Back for Reviving Language and Culture. And they um, it actually ends in four weeks, so definitely get on top of it. You can get um, you can find it on chuff.org and you just have to type in uh, sorry, A-N-A-I-W-A-N and you'll be able to find it and uh, just read some of what they've written here as well. And it is just in order to help preserve the language as well as the land that is there. And I think um, it's important to keep that going. And this, similarly, it is also trying to keep this sustainable. And then lastly, there is also Black Pearl Studio, which is a creative and cultural studio here in um, so-called Victoria. And it is, yeah, a drop-in space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples located um, at the Florence Peel Centre in Fitzroy. And it's, you know, it's a significant area and it's been hosting um, and building a community governed by elders and leaders of the local Aboriginal community, free access to artistic materials, tools, resources, and technical as well as personal support. Uh, yeah, I think you can also find that one on Chuffed as well. So just type in the Black Pearl Studio Aboriginal Cultural and Creative Studio as well. So, yeah, those are the ones that we wanted to highlight today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Inez. Yeah, um, and listeners who were listening last week would have heard um, Dave Witters from Anawan Land Buyback um, talking about that initiative. And it was really, really great to see um, that they, I think they're almost halfway to their goal after fundraising yesterday. And um, yeah, great to keep supporting them. Another um, another good uh, place to put your money and pay the rent is the Dajua Foundation. Um, so, you know, um, we've ha- also spoken to the Dajua Foundation, um, which is run by... Um, the fam- uh, it's run sorry for families of people whose um, fam- family members have died in custody, and it supports, um, yeah, you know, um, all the families of those who have died in custody, and is a really, really another really important organisation. So there are just a few places to put some money. Um, if you can't uh, give money at this at this moment in time, you know, there are many other things that you can do. You can um, share. Um, it's really important to boost these, share them with your networks, not just on social media, but even, um, you know, in any family chats or with your friends um, and, and really make sure that people know about these things as well as, um, yeah, just um, giving money if you can. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Are you a taxi or rideshare driver? CPVV believes that the journey is just as important as the destination. For people with a disability, using taxi or rideshare can be challenging due to refused services, intrusive questions and drivers denying assistance animals. As a driver, you make a difference. 
Be the reason people with a disability have a great trip. Authorised by CPVV. A 3CR... Have you heard it on the news About this fascist group thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah... Yen Pasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're going to be joined by Frank Gaffar, a well-one and Wiradjuri queer man, trade unionist, education and community activist, and one of the organisers of the No Pride in Police open letter. And Frank is going to join us to discuss that open letter and its calls for Victoria Police to cease participation in the Pride March. Good morning, Frank. Welcome to Thursday morning breakfast. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, I might just give you a chance before we get into the interview just to introduce yourself as well for listeners. Yeah, of course. Um, as, as you said, I'm a Wawan Radri man um, from New South Wales and um, I'm a trade unionist by trade. I've, I've worked in um, higher education and um, education activism for over the last decade, um, predominantly in employment and uh, the union space. And um, I'm also a, a community organiser. I, I used to organise or, or be in the organising group of um, equal marriage rallies in Canberra. Um, and, yeah, I've been in, in NAM for about six years now. Um, awesome. Thank you. Oh, it's just when you said you're, that you're in NAM, I was like, oh, we used to be able to have people in the studio, but not, not since COVID. But, um, yeah, it's good to know that you're, <laughs> you're close by in, in, anyway, even if you're not actually here. So um, on Tuesday, you um, and another organiser, Joshua Badge, launched an open letter signed by LGBTIQA plus community members calling on Victoria P- Police to cease participation in the Victorian Pride March. And I'm just wondering if you could speak in a bit more detail about um, what the letter is calling for. Yeah, of, of course. Um, well, in, in effect, the letter is about people feeling safe at Pride and, and specifically the Pride March. Um, there are some people in the community who um, can safely interact with police, but um, of course there, there's a, groups within the community, um, me included being an Aboriginal person, uh, where their presence uh, can make people feel unsafe and, and that's, that's predominantly what the letter um, is about, and um, you know, we're not saying people aren't welcome in a personal capacity, but we're really calling for um, the decentering of police. Um, over the last few years, um, with Pride, uh, with the march, and people would have seen at the carnival 
um, on Sunday, there has been an increased presence of um, police and um, uh, sort of like police stalls and, and sort of police information um, that um, really makes some people in the community feel uncomfortable. So um, there are examples around the world, um, you know, New York City, Toronto, um, Auckland and even Brisbane last year where there have been motions passed um, to uh, sort of decenter the police within Pride. And so we just think um, that with recent data that's come out, um, we should respect community sentiment and um, sort of respectfully asking the police to um, not participate in Pride as an organisation. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's um, a really good point as well that you make that it's not just, I mean, it's like an, it is an increasing presence of the police, isn't it? It's not just that they're there, but there's kind of um, an attempt to, I don't know, it feels like a maybe a branding exercise or yeah, this idea of like the police are the friends of the queer community and that's what they're trying to put forward. But that um, doesn't really reflect uh, many people's experiences. As um, you just mentioned there, some statistics or recent data coming out of um, a survey done by the Victorian Pride Lobby in 2020. Um, they released a report and in that report they talk about three and four respondents of that survey um, and nine out of ten gender diverse respondents believing that the police should not march in uniform in Pride. Um, I guess this doesn't come as any surprise, really. Um, but could you speak to the discrimination and violence, as well as distrust experienced by queer and gender diverse communities? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not only those um, statistics from the Victorian Pride Lobby, but also there's um, ABS uh, general social survey data that shows only half of gay, lesbian, and bisexual people feel they can trust the police, um, and. Um, you know, I think the the really important statistic there is a nine out of ten um, gender diverse respondents because you know when we're talking about being queer, it's also about standing in solidarity with everybody in the community, and and that statistic is um, a really important one to acknowledge about um, safety um, within um, pride spaces. Um, and and I guess um, I mean my fellow organizer uh, Joshua Badge, um, they wrote an article last year. Um, when this data was released, and, and uh, there's even recent um, examples of um, uh, the sort of respect or lack of respect that police have um, for the queer community. We only have to go back to um, trans woman um, Danny Laidley and the two instances of um, photos being um, non-consensually shared um, of, of her um, over the last um, two years, almost. Um, and, um, you know, there was the Hairs and Hyenas um, police raid that mm. occurred in 2019. Um, so, you know, police violence, um, I, I think it's really important in this conversation not to um, speak of police violence as a historical issue. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes um, that's what um, people try to do. Mm. Um, it, it's a current issue and it, violence is currently happening to people within our community. Um, and... Um, while it still happens, people will feel unsafe or pride um, if police are participating as an organisation. So I think um, it's really important to acknowledge that and that's what this letter is about. Totally. I think that's really important. And it is about safety. I, I think sometimes it can yeah, turn into a conversation of um, whether people feel, you know, good about it or not, but it is about actual safety and um, it is useful to have these uh, statistics and data to kind of back up what members of the queer community already know anecdotally or from their own experience is that, um, yeah, there, there isn't any reason to trust the police for queer people and, as you say, especially for gender diverse communities as well. Um, 
So obviously yesterday was Invasion Day and that is yet another reminder of the violence of the police um, here. So the open letter speaks to groups of LGBTIQA plus community who are more often targeted by police and this obviously includes Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Could you speak to the importance of centering these experiences um, in this call to get cops out of pride? Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say solidarity with uh, any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening. Um, it's always a hard time of year, and I just want to acknowledge um, community organisers um, and the work they do day in, day out, especially yesterday, um, for community. Um, and really, when we talk about um, activism in um, so-called Australia, um, we're on stolen lands, and so um, state police violence um, against us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is consistent and persistent. And um, if activism, especially queer activism, doesn't centre Indigenous voices, um, then we can't really call it legitimate activism within the colony. I mean, that, that's my strong opinion on that. And when we talk about the queer community more broadly, it's inherently intersectional. And so, like, our politics have to be um, intersectional or they don't really stand up um, as really being politics of the queer community. Um, and, and it's not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. You know, there are, uh, are many, um, many, many um, African communities, um, African-Australian communities in Australia and refugee communities and people living with disabilities who um, all have different levels of um, trust uh, for the police and um, do have violent interactions with the police. And so um, I think really important to acknowledge that, um, yes, there might be some people who uh, feel safe and comfortable with police and pride, but um, our community is diverse and, and it's full of many different people and we have to stand in solidarity with making sure um, everybody feels safe um, when attending pride events. Yeah, thank you. That's um, so, so important. Not Yeah, I mean, what what is a pride event if not everybody in that space is feeling um comfortable and safe really like it's it's not working it's not it's not doing its job um and pride marches you know they come out of a form of protest or they still are a form of protest and sometimes it feels like they become corporatized or um move in a different direction so i just wanted to talk about why it's important that these um, marches remain, you know, grassroots community celebrations and at the same time remain grounded in um, political action. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, it, it's an interesting question. I feel with Pride, it, it traditionally is um, community gra and grassroots-led um, and any sort of move uh, for Pride to align itself with um, say the police or, or corporations or any of the like um, does sort of compromise the um, inherent ability to protest mm. um, and to critique systems, and and so um, I think it's really important that um, pride remains led and controlled by a community. Um, and I guess the importance of um, this letter is that um, we are in effect going by community data. This is this is um, sentiments that the community. Um, have stated in the Victorian Pride Lobby survey and, of, and of course, the, the ABS data that I mentioned earlier. So um, I think in this regard, it, it's really important that the police listen to what the community are saying and respect that the Pride marches um, need to remain grounded um, in community um, activism and control um, and 
yeah, I, I just think it's really important for the integrity of pride, but also um, the safety of community, like, like I've said so many times uh, mm-hmm. in, in this conversation, that um, we respect um, community voices. Yeah, well, I mean, there's also all those voices um, on the open, who have signed the open letter. So could you just give us an update on how many signatures you've um, so far gathered on that open letter and, um, yeah, how, if people can join up as well? Oh, that is a very, very good question. Um, I do not have uh, an exact figure just yet. That's um, so it, fine. Is, it is over 100 people. So yeah. we have had um, some people make contact and, and, and sign on. Um, so it is over 100 people. I can't give you an exact number. Um, but there will also be um, sort of actions coming out over the mm. um, coming days and weeks. So um, there will be opportunities for people to, to sign on to the campaign. Yeah, um, great. Going forward. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to ask a question because when I was like thinking about this conversation and doing some reading, I was looking at some of those places where um, police, no, no police in Pride has been successful as a call at other Pride marches around the world. Um, and, you know, in places like New York City, for example, and you listed a number of others um, earlier in the conversation, but there are also calls accompanying um, those calls for police not to march, also to have more, you know, community security first responders who are not police um, to help um, create safety for participants and for the community, but without that police role and I was just wondering if you could speak to that whether that's something that your campaign is looking to or yeah something that you're interested in or support yeah um, well look at, at the moment the campaign is purely about um, achieving the community wishes around police participation in pride and so we haven't had much conversation about um, what you know security of pride and whether or not community security could be an idea going forward um, we're open to the conversation and I think that again needs to be led by a community so if people want to be having that conversation um, that could be something that comes out of this um, as well once we, we go we go through um, this conversation around um, police participation but what I would say from from a, from a personal point of view is that um, Historically, yes, the community are the ones who have kept us safe. You, you, you look at um, how recently um, we were criminalised by the state. Um, and when we were criminalised by the state, uh, the police weren't the ones who kept us safe. It was community who kept us safe. Um, you know, community groups, community organisations. Um, when police were raiding nightclubs and queer spaces, um, it was the community who um, made sure that people um, were safe and looked after. And so um, I don't think... Um, it's a it's an unusual unreasonable idea that the community would look inwards and and um, to ourselves to keep us safe mm, yeah thank you um and yeah so finally like just wrapping up do you want to tell listeners where they can find the open letter if and when they can if they can join the campaign or support the campaign in other ways and kind of where, where to from here what are you hoping for in terms of a response from Victoria police yeah so um the Best places to look for updates is um, where the letter is housed um, on the internet. Um, so no pride, no, no police at pride. Sorry, no police at pride.com um, is where the letter is, and there will be updates on there um, as the campaign goes forward. Um, but also, um, we'll probably be making updates and announcements on Twitter, so you can follow um, myself and Joshua on Twitter, and we're pretty easy to find because. Uh, just both our names, so at Frank Gaffer and at Joshua Badge. 
Um, and at the moment, we've, we'll launch the letter um, this week. Um, there'll be some um, uh, actions with the letter about putting that forward to specific um, organisations. But really, um, over the next uh, sort of coming days and weeks, there'll be um, ways that people can um, engage and join in um, on, on the campaign. So I just sort of encourage people to um, keep an eye on the website and um, announcements coming from us um, about what the next steps are. Excellent. That's great. So, yeah, it's following on Twitter, following on the website, nopoliceinpride.com. And that um, is really great. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Frank. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting um, me, Rosie. And, and I'm sure myself and all the people who signed onto the letter so far really appreciate um, you broadcasting this and um, getting us um, some traction. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Frank. And just then you heard Frank Gaffer, a well one and Wiradjuri queer man, trade unionist, education and community activist, and one of the organisers of the No Police in Pride open letter. And he was joining us there to discuss that letter and its call for Victoria Police to cease participation in the Pride March. You're on 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast. A proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit. First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. 
Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. And you're back on Thursday morning breakfast. And I think, Malika, you should be on the line now. Yes, I'm back online. Thank you so much for holding down the fort in the studio, Rosie. Um, we are now going to be jumping into an interview with Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre. And they join us to discuss the centre's recent statement on Australia's housing and homeless crisis, as highlighted in the Productivity Commission's 2020 report on government services as well as provide update on the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg and the importance of prioritising public housing over private property. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Good. How are you going? Pretty good. Um, thank you once again for joining us um, this morning. And for listeners that maybe don't know, Jay um, did an interview with us in October last year, a little bit about some of the topics we're covering this morning. Um, But I guess I'll just jump into the first question, Jay. The recent report from the Productivity Commission highlights that more homelessness services and more funding won't fix the housing crisis, particularly at the height of Omicron. Additionally, this is a Band-Aid solution for a gaping wound. Can you tell us a bit more about how to address the gaping wound of welfare? Yeah, sure. So the uh, Productivity Commission's uh, issues paper is available for people to put in submission. So I'd encourage anyone who has an interest or any lived experience, jump onto the Productivity Commission website and um, find out how that they can do their own submission um, and they're due by the 21st of February. But basically the Anti-Poverty Centre um, is and has always been calling for an increase to uh, income support payments, social security system. So namely the job seeker payment being the main one and disability support pension. Uh, just obviously it's been proven inadequate um, during the recent Omicron wave and the Delta wave because 
uh, as the issues paper highlighted, uh, in 2020-21, uh, 114,000 people who applied for uh, homelessness support services uh, were, re- were rejected under this uh, scope of funding for this system. So namely, we'd call for an increase to uh, social security payments um, and you know, actual serious uh, reform to tax concessions uh, made available for investors uh, and property speculators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess like leading on from that, the government's involvement in housing and homelessness sector is to ensure that everyone has access to affordable, safe and sustainable housing. However, the recent report from the Productivity Commission found a significant increase in the number of people turned away from homelessness services and nearly half of all people who receive Commonwealth rent assistance in housing stress. What are the ramifications for this continued inaction on housing support and income support payments? Well, the situation will clearly only continue to get worse, as we've seen, um, particularly through, you know, uh, the COVID crisis of the past two years. So um, even the rent, uh, Commonwealth rent assistance uh, hasn't been increasing with uh, the increase of rents with over the past, you know, decades, which is, you know, truly astounding considering the, you know, rate of housing stress is increasing at the same time. Um, but even then, increasing uh, Commonwealth rent assistance is just making available another uh, tax credit to the, um, the landlords in this situation and developers. So there needs to be serious uh, increase to housing stock, um, particularly in public housing, to make housing affordable for everyone uh, in areas that aren't just on the peripheries of you know the inner city areas, but actually, you know, closer to services in the city, in the cities. Yeah, for sure. And I guess with the recent trends in inflation as well, it really isn't helping, and there needs to be kind of an increase overall in the amount of support offered. Um, Inez, over to you for the next question. Hi, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm just Inez. Um, with the next question. I think, yeah, as Malika has said, it's about the long-term impacts of COVID. And uh, a great mutual aid organization, the Disability Justice Network, has stated that COVID is a mass disabling event. And with the introduction of rapid antigen testing and underreporting of case numbers, claiming welfare payments for long COVID is likely to become an issue. Um, and what do you think will be the impact of, I, I guess, experiencing homelessness and or disability in the long term? In relation to welfare payments, yeah. So that's that's a, it's a really good question because what we know uh, about the disability support pension payment itself is that it doesn't actually, you know, it actually prevents people with a disability from uh, gaining the payment. Um, and there's a very high number of you know disabled folks who are on the job seeker payment because they, you know don't qualify as disabled under the government's um, uh, impairment table, which was introduced by the Labor government in uh, 2011. So what we will see is, you know, cases of long COVID uh, coming in and people who will be unable to, you know, like work as they uh, did prior to COVID uh, or contracting COVID and so more and more people will be relying on the social security system to substitute, you know, their incomes. And, and it's just totally, uh, 
you know, incapable of actually assisting people in these under these conditions. Yeah, I think that definitely the impacts of COVID um, long term, and I think some of the ways that we'll have to uh, report and the fact that it is a mass disabling but is so concerning in terms of welfare and you're right as you know going back to the previous issue that uh you know more homelessness services more disability services doesn't actually solve the fact that we actually need better and more increased welfare payments and i think also with the the newest COVID variant, the Anti-Poverty Centre, urges that the government lift Social Security payments to at least the Henderson Poverty Line, which is currently at $83 a day, and reinstate previous temporary measures so that the community are able to access safe shelter and be supported to find a secure place to live. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so basically, as we've seen, people are, you know, under lockdown. They're, in, you know, unable to go and, you know... Uh, help themselves uh, when they do have COVID, but more importantly, you know, as uh, highlighted by the uh, Disability Justice Network at their recent event, is that, you know, because of the government's let it rip policies, uh, people are incapable of leaving their house altogether and people are trapped inside, meaning they can't work, they can't, you know, uh, be able to order groceries because that, that in itself is expensive. So we're going to need these supports for people who are, you know, pretty much incapable of leaving their own homes or, you know, uh, protecting themselves because the government's decided to, you know, unleash this eugenics policy, namely against people with disability, and, you know, most of which are, are not on the disability support pension. And even if they are, it is still totally inadequate um, mm-hmm. for the conditions under which we live. Yeah, I think it is utterly disgraceful that uh, these people have been let, left in the dark um, and that, yeah, I think people may not understand how expensive it is to live as a disabled person. Um, there is delivery, there is not being able to work, there is constantly having to be in your house um, and even the social aspect of that isolation can be quite devastating as well. Um, and I think the, the least we can do is support with increased welfare payments. And I know just finally, uh, we caught up with you last October uh, to discuss the Moreland Council's plan to sell um, council-owned land to a private company to set up a community health precinct in yeah, Moreland Council. Where does the proposal currently stand? Where can people sign the petition? Yeah, so at, at this stage, um, in, at the December meeting, the Moreland Council, uh, the Greens and Labor and Independents uh, agreed to, for the sale of the land um, to the, the company, which is apparently being uh, funded by a superannuation fund. Um, so as it stands, the land is still set to be sold. Um, there's still some time before any development proceeds as the council is obviously working over you know, the, the contract and so forth with the company. But again, it's just disappointing to see something like of the, the Greens, for example, who, you know, uh, in their federal election platform are promoting, you know, millions of public housing and affordable housing, yet uh, the their council counterparts, are, you know, proposed uh, are happy to sell off 13% of council-owned land where, you know, people, uh, council could take the initiative where the states and federal have failed and looked for ways to finance and fund and develop, you know, public and community and social housing so that 
people aren't being pushed out of their communities in some kind of social cleansing exercise. So, um, yeah, just uh, it's still coming along, but we'll have to wait and see what we can do as we find out more. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for all those really insightful responses. I know that um, myself and definitely listeners have probably learnt um, a little bit extra today. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. And uh, if we did want to support um, the petition, where could we find it? Yeah, um, so the petition I can uh, forward to because I don't have it on hand um, and maybe yep. <laughs> it online so you support it. Um, but uh, yeah, um, you could also find the Anti-Poverty Centre uh, online. Um, we've just got a little website up and running at the moment. Uh, it's not too flashy, but you can find out some more uh, information about us personally and as we develop it. Uh, so that's uh, antipovertycentre.org. Um, and you can also follow us uh, where we're more active on Twitter, which and our handles at AntiPovertyCent. Great. Thank you so much, Jay. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. We've just heard from Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre that joined us to discuss the centre's recent statement on Australia's housing and homeless crisis as highlighted by the Productivity Commission 2022 report on government services, as well as to provide updates on the proposed sale of public land by Mullen City Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg, and the importance of prioritising public housing for private profit. And I'll just pass it over to you, Rosie. Thank you. Thanks so much, Inez and Malika and Jay. And you are on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, or you might be streaming live on our website. Um, and next we're going to go into a track. This one is One by One by Ancestress. Dum, 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 Dum da 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 dum da dum. They killed us one by one. They killed us two by two. They shot us down with guns and they poisoned the food. They spread the smallpox long, spread the smallpox wide before they came to Queensland. Nine out of ten had died. Put it out again. Taking five out of ten, that left us five percent. Oh what a high descent. But they carry their flags, carry their flags, and it's an honor, such an honor, just to fly that flag. Da 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 dum da dum da da dum da dum da da dum da dum da da dum da dum. They killed us man by man, they killed us clan by clan. They gave us new demands, took away our lands. Stole my talk and they have changed my walk And what belongs to us is still sold and bought Still feed me poison food Give a place for the rude They strip necessity nude So they can build an excuse But they carry their flags Carry their flags And it's an honor, such an honor Just to fly that flag Da-da-da-dum, da-dum, da-da-da-dum Sovereignty 
This has always been home And still the stories we keep Reflect the truth we've known But they kill us today Still take our kids away Yeah, they carry out war Just in a different way But they carry their flags Carry their flags And it's an honor An honor just to fly that flag Da-da-da-dum Da-dum Da-da-da-dum Da-dum And that track there was One by One by Ancestress. You're on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And next up, we are going to hear um, a conversation Priya had with Dr. Jackie Huggins earlier in the week. And they were discussing the recently published updated edition of her classic collection, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titterism, Identity and Reconciliation, which is out now with the University of Queensland Press. And Dr. Huggins is a member of the Bidjara and Birigaba Juru people and is currently leading the work towards treaty and treaties in Queensland. And this section of the conversation that we're about to hear is just part of a a larger conversation that you can catch next Monday, the 31st of January from 8.30 to 9am on 3CR's Women on the Line program. Um, And you can also hear a conversation that Dr. Huggins is having with Dr. Anita Heiss on Monday evening, and you can register for that at UQP's website. And now we'll hear um, Priya chatting with Dr. Jackie Huggins. Before we jump into this discussion about Sister Girl, I was wondering if you would like to introduce yourself in a little more detail to our listeners. Yes, certainly. Um, my name is Jackie Huggins. I was born in Air North Queensland. I am a Bidjara, Birigaba, Juru woman from North and uh, Central Queensland. I've lived in Brisbane most of my life, but I've uh, travelled around, of course, places like Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, and, uh, you know, I've had a, a, a very broad experience in, in uh, government, non-government organisations and a broader range, I would say about 40 uh, years of work within Aboriginal affairs. So it's been um, a fairly lengthy time with its ups and downs, of course, but nevertheless, I'm still here to, to talk about it. Yeah, and I mean, it really is a wealth of experience that informs the writing that is collected in this updated version of Sister Girl, which you've made the time to talk with us about today. And this includes both your original explorations of identity, activism, feminism, leadership, and community work that was published in 1998, as well as a collection of some of that later writing and orations that further develop these themes across your quite prolific career. So, Something that I found clearly underpinned that collection, and which is echoed in the title, is the strength of Aboriginal women. And I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on honouring Aboriginal women and the strong relationships between Aboriginal women through, as you put it in your reflections on writing your mother's biography, The Liberated, writing about The Liberated. Yes, well, I think it's fairly foundational of where I start. I'm... um the daughter of a very strong mother and granddaughter of a very strong 
grandmother who um, I guess she actually she passed when I was fairly young, my uh, grandmother, but my mother carried on this whole legacy of uh, you know the the very typical strong Aboriginal woman. When my father died in the uh, 1950s, my mother took on four children as a single mother, and uh, she she read us up. And her story, of course, is um, written down in my book Auntie Rita in 1996. I hope to do a, a reversion, uh, a revamp of that too in the next year or so. But you know, the strength I think of Aboriginal women is embedded as part of your DNA and um, you tend to carry that on. And I know many strong Aboriginal women across the country who uh, who do that. In fact, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know that I would know too many women who have not fought for their families, fought for their children, fought for the um, social justice and, and the rights of Indigenous people. It may not have been in a public way, but certainly in a, in a way in which many of us carry that that legacy with us and uh, for me I've been very fortuitous in that I've been able to have a platform by which I can write and speak about issues that you know many of our Aboriginal women would probably never find the, the place to uh, to talk about or write about those things so in a way my you're right my previous experience has really informed who I am and what I do and the kinds of positions I can hold and I guess to be a voice for our people when required, you know. I think one of the very best pieces of advice that uh, I got from actually as a media advisor, don't jump into every dogfight because you will wear yourself out and you will become very overloaded and you'll burn yourself out. So I've sort of kept that in mind and you know, I do say no to a few things, and it's about pacing yourself. And for Aboriginal women, uh, you know, we have so many responsibilities that burden us at times that we have to, you know, do a bit of self-care and um, make sure that we're actually being taken care of ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really leads into the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is your groundbreaking writing around the relationship between the women's movement and Aboriginal women and uh, a really memorable inclusion in both the original and updated version of Sister Girl is that transcript of your conversation with African-American feminist Bell Hooks, who's sadly no longer with us. And you discussed the ways in which white women needed to be prepared to give up power I'm wondering if you could reflect on whether there's been any kind of shift in the dynamic of these issues of racial exclusion and anti-blackness in the feminist movement in 2022 compared to, you know, the time of publication of that original version. Yes, well, uh, I started writing about this stuff in the 1980s, so a fair while ago. We're very invisible in those days, and there have been struggles before that of Aboriginal women in the 60s and 70s, but, you know, basically just getting ignored, not getting any traction, and, um, you know, being put on the back burner in the white feminist movement. And so I became very, very angry about that. And there were no Aboriginal women that I could look to who were writing uh, that stuff. So I turned to the US where I discovered 
great writers like Audrey Lord, Alice Walker, and of course, the wonderful Bell Hooks, who I studied through my university time. I was very fortunate, thanks to Nicholas Joseph from the ABC Coming Out show, to be part of an interview with her because we were basically doing the same sorts of theorising but also ways in which we could see that we would be able to have a better relationship. Well, certainly that was for me. I'm not quite sure what it was for Belle. But um, I thought, well, you know, how do we break this? Because all the women that were in power in those days were white women, you know, and they were very much associated with white men of power. And unfortunately, we were being excluded and, and left out. So the 1980s and 90s for me were kind of really years where I tried to get some messages across but be informed by those black women from the States who really helped me crystallise in my head what that might look like. So Bell Hooks was a major influence in my life. Um, I was very lucky to meet her some 25 years ago when I was on a writer's tour. Um, I met her in London. She was giving a talk there. And the next day I went back to meet her and have a cup of tea with her. But uh, little did I know, I thought, oh, gosh, this is fabulous, you know. <laughs> She's actually um, making sure she sees me, of all people. But then um, when I showed up, she had a diary of on the hour, every hour, for women who particularly wanted to come and see her and talk to her. So, you know, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was one of the great highlights of my time. It's always a struggle, you know. It, it really is, because as recently as June Oscar's report, which I refer to in Sister Girl, it's a report that was done 34 years later than the Women's Business Report, of which I was part of the organisation of that too and, and writing uh, that report. And it pointed out all the struggles of First Nations women here in Australia and what we might do, yet, you know, that's a, that's a report I think that deserves far more attention because it is an absolute blueprint for, you know, how we can forward our progress together. In those days, in the 80s, you know, there were some migrant women who came to conferences and so forth but really weren't given opportunities or power to speak. And with Aboriginal women, we had to fight our way through that to get heard on conferences and forums, it's less so now, I think, less so, but, you know, I don't think people would dare to exclude us from those kind of discussions, but I still hear from young black women, especially on International Women's Day, that, um, you know, they're not invited to participate or to be included or, you know, the topic is so far off our struggles that they don't seem to want to, to be involved, but... Um, yeah, I hear this quite often from younger black women in our communities and there's still that fight, you know, there's still that fight also for women of a different diversity to really jump on and, and to be involved. I mean, there are certain exceptions around that. Organisations like Women of the World, I think, are doing a, a good job in terms of unifying and including our women. We had Oxfam, who was the organisation that ran the training program which um, Michelle Deschamps ran, Straight Talk, and that was about looking at getting Aboriginal women and Torres Strait Islander women into politics. 
And way back, I remember Amanda Vanstone actually gave some money to run an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women's leadership course. That would have been about 2004, 2007, and that went on under the great leadership of a woman called Kerry Tim, who was a senior bureaucrat, an Aboriginal woman from Queensland. Uh, she ran those programs. And, you know, I still meet those women who say, that leadership program helped me in so many ways. I'm now a CEO of an organisation. I'm on the board or I'm on the chair of organisations. So that's really, um, you know, it's really good to hear after all those years. Yeah, and the new inclusions in this version of Sister Girl also really speak to the achievements and a lot of the work that has happened that you've been involved with since that original publication. And things have been difficult and hard fought. And you've spoken quite frankly in those pieces and orations about where things have gone right and where things have gone wrong. And I was hoping to hear a bit about how you selected the newer pieces to complement the original collection. Yeah, sure. Well, a third of the book is around the newer pieces. And I wanted it to kind of flavour, in fact, the work that I've been doing over the, the many years. And a lot of it was, you know, political organisations that I've been involved with. And to take forward that reconciliation thing too, I think, which is very important. And that's around, you know, still educating people. But I think we've got a lot more supporters around than we ever had in the 80s. And also, you know, the high incarceration rates of particularly Aboriginal women, I wanted to make sure that was in there. And stuff around racism is still so endemic in our society. I wanted uh, pieces on that. But also orations that I've done that have really explored those themes of mostly reconciliation and identity. Less so have I done the real heavy feminist, titterist, titterism stories now. I think they blend in, in fact, to all that I write about anyway. And this one, uh, which was very ably helped by my publisher, the University of Queensland Press. I gave them the whole assortment and outlined that and they helped me choose around the various themes that might make it, you know, readable but interesting to, to people too. It's also, Priya, uh, one of those things where you can just pick out, you know, a certain topic that you're interested in, perhaps and come back. It's not done in a chronological or a a kind of subject matter style. It's just done to, you know, to show people the kind of various uh, components, I guess, of my life, but certainly the struggles that I've been in and still am in uh, to this day. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and just then um, you heard from Dr Jackie Huggins, and I think I'll hand over to Priya to do a proper back-and-outs of that amazing interview. Sure, yeah, I mean, an absolute honor to be able to speak with Dr. Huggins about uh, the updated edition of her classic collection, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titism, Identity and Reconciliation. And as we mentioned earlier, this is out now with the University of Queensland Press. And Dr. Huggins is a member of the Bidjara and Berry Gabajuru peoples, and she's currently leading the work towards treaty or treaties in Queensland and has had a prolific career in the public sector in Aboriginal affairs and is also, you know, a writer and historian. And this was just a section of that conversation that we had. And there's a lot more, including a discussion with Dr. Huggins about her experiences of writing the biographies of 
not just her mother and her classic Auntie Rita, but also of her father, um, which is coming out this year. So you can catch that on Monday, the 31st of January from 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR's Women on the Line program. And Dr. Huggins is also going to be in conversation with Dr. Anita Heiss on Monday evening with an event at the University of Queensland Press. And you can register online at uqp.com.au forward slash events. Thanks, Priya. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of that interview. And uh, as you said in our little text chat while we were listening, um, that story about bell hooks is incredibly sweet. Yeah, it's um, it's just really, I guess, really lovely hearing, you know, writers that I admire speaking about being in relation with each other and, you know, developing this international solidarity and intellectual development and activist development as well. And um, Dr. Huggins, mentioned um, that in an interview with the ABC that Bell Hooks characterized her as a as a revolutionary and she took that as a real compliment. But I think, you know, it's really important to, to honor this work, not just at this time of year, but, you know, 365 days. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of honoring um, work and, um, you know, acknowledging the fact that we're living on stolen land 365 days of the year. I thought maybe we could, um, there's a few more uh, fundraisers and ways to pay the rent that we haven't shared earlier. So maybe we could go through some of them and I can kick us off um, just with um, pay the rent. So um, as many of you know, pay the rent is an organization um, where, where, uh, colonizers and settlers can pay the rent. And I would really recommend if people are able to, to do that, not just today, as we said, but, um, on a regular basis, they have an option for paying, you know, monthly. Um, and that's a really important thing to do to make a commitment, um, in that way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also actually have an update to uh, a COVID crisis fundraiser if it's okay if I, if I mention that. Yeah. Yeah, so um, this is about the COVID crisis that's currently happening in Milikapiti in the Tiwi Islands. And there are now 60 cases, um, this is as of 12 hours ago, in the remote Northern Territory Tiwi Island community of Milikapiti, which is home to 450 people. And there are limited resources available. You know, the shop, uh, the one grocery store is working really hard to provide food. Um, power and other support for families affected by COVID. And they're asking for donations directly to the shop. So that's M-I-L-I-K-A-P-T-I, Community Indigenous Corporation. And uh, they're asking for donations to BSB 065901, account number 00902135. And you can also just look up Milka PT Community Indigenous Corporation, um, I think, on Facebook and also on Twitter, where people are sharing links about where to donate, um, because it is quite urgent to provide supplies and, you know, essentials for people that need to quarantine during this outbreak. Yeah, I, I was reading that post as well. And just, yeah, the fact that, you know, um, it is it is really hard to get things to the Tiwi Islands and 
um, lack of access is is massive issue in terms of having COVID. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be for the community. So um, a really good one to support as well. And we can put links to this and all of the other um, fundraising and land back efforts that we have been talking about on the show um, in our show notes. So if listeners are feeling like they can't write things down quickly enough or find them um, just from what we're said on air, we'll, we'll have links to that um, in our show notes, which will be up after the show this morning. Yeah, and um, Inez, did you want to remind listeners about just a couple of what we spoke about earlier? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think we mentioned Dajawa Foundation. That is a family-run First Nations charity that is doing – organisation, sorry, that's doing incredible work, um, supporting families through the whole media process, coroner's court uh, of those who experience uh, black deaths in custody. And they have really been pioneers and community leaders, and I think that's a definitely important one. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just supporting them, but also on a yeah, as Rosie has said, an ongoing basis, and also educating yourself on what uh, what actually causes this in the first place. And uh, before earlier on the show, uh, we mentioned the Victoria Aboriginal Health Service, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, um, who's been doing ongoing work for the community, as well as the Rune of Kalak, the which is the GoFundMe for the land back, and the Alawan Local Aboriginal Land Council, which their land back uh, project is also on chuff.org, as well as Black Pearl Studio, which is on chuff.org as well, which is the Aboriginal Cultural and Creative Studio. Uh, but if anybody else has anything to add, do let me know. Yeah, I mean, it's I'd like there's it's just really important to go back and um, I think also listen to that interview we did with Dave Witters from the Anawan uh, Land Back Initiative with the Newar Aboriginal Corpora- Corporation. Sorry, um, so that was with last year's Thursday Breakfast show, and you can find that on 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast to find out just why it is so important uh, that you know. Aboriginal people around the country, but in, uh, in particular, Anawan people are uh, launching this land back initiative to revive language and culture on country. And yes, yeah, just really important at this time, um, you know, if you think about the fact that it is the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and the core importance of land rights to that movement to think about how we can be supporting um, Aboriginal sovereignty and self-determination movements like uh, reviving Anawan. Yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, yesterday listening to the 3CR broadcast from um, the 50th anniversary tent embassy celebration protest um, and, you know, just speak, hearing people's reflections on that history, I do think it is really important um, that if that's a history that you don't know much about, to go back and listen to some of that programming and hear from the people who were there and from their descendants talking about the importance of that ongoing protest, the longest um, ongoing protest in the world, and also just the history um, of of land rights and, and what that call really means and, and why that became such a big issue and continues to be such an important thing to support and be fighting for. Mm. Yeah, and uh, for people that are, uh, you know, that absorb information more easily through reading, I also recommend that people check out uh, Professor Gary Foley's website, which is kouriweb.org. So that's K-O-O-R-I-W-E-B.org, where there's a whole page dedicated to the history of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and, you know, media reporting on it, uh, writing by Aboriginal scholars and activists about it. 
please be advised, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, that there are images and um, writings on that uh, that in, uh, include people who are deceased. But it's just an absolutely amazing resource, and I encourage people to check it out and learn more, not just about the Ten Embassy, but about the land rights struggle overall. Um, yeah, because it's something that, you know, we have to keep keep an eye on, keep learning about. And there's also the incredible documentary. I think you might be able to find a copy online still. I'm not quite sure. Ningla Ana, which does reflect on the original establishment of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, and that is very well worth a watch. Yeah. Is that the same um, documentary that they're wanting to restore the original film of? Is that right? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I'm not quite sure. Okay. Uh, I I just saw something recently about that. But yeah, um, anyway... Um, maybe we'll go into a quick rundown of what we've had on the show this morning. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I can kick us off. So first up, we had Guama woman Cheryl Buchanan, who's one of the early campaigners with the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, and in 1972, and she spoke with uh, she spoke at the 50th anniversary of the embassy yesterday. And this audio was broadcast live during 3CR's Invasion Day 2022 programming. And then I spoke with Frank Gaffer, a well-one and Radri queer man, trade unionist, education and community activist, and one of the organisers of the No Police in Pride open letter. And he joined us to discuss that letter and its call for Victoria Police to cease particip- participation in Pride. And in that interview, he also mentioned that there may be some upcoming actions um, in relation to that open letter. So you can keep an eye um on Frank's Twitter, as well as Joshua Badge's Twitter, both just their names, Frank Gaffer and Joshua Badge, and um, the website nopoliceinpride.com. And then we were joined by Jane Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre, who joined us to discuss the centre's recent statement on Australia's housing and homeless crisis, as highlighted in the Productivity Commission 2022 uh, report on government services, as well as to provide updates on the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg. And the importance of prioritising public housing over public profit. We spoke also about... uh, claiming welfare for long COVID and uh, yeah, how putting, um, how increase in homelessness services will do very little if the welfare is actually not increased. Yeah. And finally, uh, you heard an interview or part of an interview that I did with Dr. Jackie Huggins about her recently published updated edition of Sister Girl Reflections on Titism, Identity and Reconciliation, which is out now with the University of Queensland Press. And Dr. Huggins is a member of the Bidjara and Berry Gabajuru Peoples. A reminder that you can catch that whole conversation on Monday, the 31st of January from 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR's Women on the Line. And also you can... Uh, catch a conversation of Dr. Jackie Huggins with Dr. Anita Heiss on Monday by registering at uqp.com.au forward slash events. Thanks, Priya. Well, um, another great show, everybody. Uh, thank you, listeners, so much for joining us. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's lots to listen to, lots to look out for, and lots of places um, to, to boost and give your money to if you can. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Bye. Bye. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.